you think about it in a story arc, some people believe the Psalms kind of follow the redemptive story plan like you see in most good stories. You know, there's this heightened conflict where you think the bad guys are going to win, you know, somewhere in the middle or towards the end of a story. Well, that's kind of the section here of the Psalms, this, this tension building of, wow, what's happening, right? Are, are the bad guys going to win? And you see that reflected in this Psalm, this uh, temptation to follow the wicked because they seem to be prospering. So we call it perspective on prosperity here in Psalm 73, perspective on prosperity. You can look out and see the bad guys winning, and you can start to question what you're doing. Like, why am I doing this, God? If, if the bad guys are going to win, why have I invested in you and trying to do what's right? Um, so a lot of us have that honest question. What's great is uh, even though a lot of the ways that we grew up, religiously we were taught to not be honest about spiritual things, the Bible teaches you to be honest. So that, that's a good thing. That's a relief, I think, as we look at the Scriptures and see the honest questioning here of Asaph. So Psalm 73 says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? We'll stop there and we'll look at more of the verses as we go on, but you see him seeing the prosperity of the wicked, and just a little detail, when he talks about uh, fatness, remember, you know, 4,000 years ago, that meant healthy, okay, we just got to translate that a little bit. Uh, In our day and age where we value skinniness so much, we think, whoa, that sounds bad. No, he's actually saying they look good, right? Uh, We might think of like someone that's a bodybuilder being puffed up and swollen, you know, they might think of it in those terms, but this is a healthy person that's eating well, that seems to be prospering. And he's looking at these people and saying, does God see? They don't think God sees what they're doing. They're denying God, yet they're prospering. What's happening, God? How do you make sense of this, God? And that's the question that he's asking. So let me pray for us, and we'll try to unpack it. God, we pray that you would teach us this morning. We thank you that you love us, and so we come to you in trust, uh, believing that you're going to speak to us through your word, that you're going to help us to understand who you are and how you've made the world. And so we ask for your help. We ask for you to open our hearts, for you to send your Holy Spirit um, to make us able to, to learn and to see you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Can anybody remember the first time they were in elementary school? Do you remember your elementary school? Mine was Thornton Elementary School. I remember the first grade, walking into this massive building, kind of being in awe. Uh, my sister was a few years older than me. Actually, she's in town, so I shouldn't say that. So I knew this kid that was older than me, and uh, they'd been there before, and I remember feeling so new and so out of place, and uh, just being in awe, you know, looking around at the big building, and the gigantic gymnasium, and the huge cafeteria, and the classroom with all these kids, and just being overwhelmed. I can remember years later coming back, I was actually, did some substitute teaching when I was in college, and I got to be a substitute teacher at this very same school. And I remember walking in and having to duck so that my head didn't hit all the snowflakes and the uh, leaves that the teachers had hung from the ceiling. Have you ever 
have that experience coming into one of your kids' classrooms maybe or going back to an elementary school as an adult. And it's a different perspective, right? What seemed to be huge when you were six years old now seems kind of tiny and strange, right? I mean, there's, there's some things that seem different about it. And what we see with the psalmist this morning is a similar change of perspective. What looked one way at one time now looks differently at another time. And so what we want to understand is how, how did he change his perspective? Because most of us are stuck where he is at the beginning with that perspective of, hey, it looks like the bad guys are winning. It looks like people that hate God are succeeding. And it looks like it doesn't necessarily pay off for us to follow you, God. Like, what, what's going on? Why, why is it going this way? Um, and we, we struggle with that, and we question it. And so, again, I appreciate that Asaph is honest, that he's actually willing to ask this question, that a lot of us feel like, I can't ask that question, right? It's not okay for me to say out loud this doubt that I have in my heart. But here, Asaph, again, models an emotional honesty for us. It's what we've seen again and again in the Psalms is that we would emotionally uh, relate, express what's really going on in our hearts. And bring that into collision with God. Okay, God, what do you have to say about this? What, what, do you, what do you have to say? So we get different perspectives on prosperity here. And the first thing that we get uh, in the beginning section is the lure of prosperity. The lure of prosperity. Prosperity is attractive. Prosperity is uh, alluring. It's something that draws us in. It's something that we want. I would argue, um, stepping outside of Psalm 73, that when you look at humanity made in the garden to enjoy paradise, we were made for prosperity. We were made for those moments when everything is just right, when things taste good, when we feel healthy, when we enjoy our work, when we get along in relationships. We're made for that. So it should be attractive. So so I just want you to understand up front that that that's right and good that that would be attractive because human beings are made for that. We are made for prosperity. And so the question is, what are we going to do with that lure and that attraction? How are we going to handle it in this broken world where we see both uh, the glimpses of prosperity, the glimpses of paradise that's been lost, and yet it's lost. So we struggle with, we don't really get to fully take hold of it now like we'd like, right? So how do we, how do we deal with that? What do we do with that? Um, in verse 1, he starts with the truth. Uh, so we've got this kind of bookend of the truth where at the beginning of the psalm he says, Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. So God is good. He's good to his people. I trust that God is good, right? And so even though he's being emotionally honest about his doubts, he's starting off with the truth and saying, okay, God, I know you're good. I know you're right. I know you're the one I should follow, but now I have some questions, right? And so this is, again, a good model of prayer, a good model of how to express yourself to God. God, I know you're good. I know you're great. I just don't get what you're doing here. Like, what's happening, God? Why is this happening this way? So this is a good model of prayer. Verse 2, as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. He's now recounting it, past tense as a testimony, and he's looking back on where he had gone. He says, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I saw them prospering. This word in Hebrew is shalom. It's the word uh, that we usually translate peace. And I've said before, peace is kind of narrow, for the word shalom. Really, the shalom is a much broader word that means everything as it should be. So prosperity is a nice, good, fat, rich word for that, right? It's it's just this general, like, ah, things are good. The idea of paradise, going back to the garden, how things are supposed to be before we decided that we wanted the gifts 
without a relationship with the giver, right? And that plunged us into a broken world, into paradise being lost. Here we have this idea of there is a sense of paradise. There is a sense of how things are supposed to be. That word is shalom, peace, prosperity, goodness. He says in verse 4, they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Again, fat and sleek, don't, don't think like obese. Just think well-fed. They're, they're doing well. Their needs are met. They're healthy. They're robust, right? They're thriving might be a way to say that. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. And then he goes on and he says, therefore, this actually magnifies their wickedness in a sense. See, it looks in verse 6. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their eyes overflow, or excuse me, their hearts overflow with follies. This one is a little bit of a kind of double meaning here where he is talking again about them looking good, and we don't get it because the the fatness thing throws us. Um, But he's talking about their eyes bulge through fatness, and so he's on one hand, this is that's actually kind of a compliment, again, which we don't quite get because the translation, he's saying uh, they're full, but then he's taking it to the extreme, right? So they are full and they are good, but it's, it's to the extreme. And so since we only hear fatness as a negative term, we don't, we don't hear that it's kind of a double-edged sword. So he's saying they look really good, but they look good to the point of being ridiculous. Does that make sense? And then at the end of the sentence, it says, Their hearts overflow with folly. So he's talking negatively about what's going on inside their soul. He says in verse 8, They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. So it's this idea of pride and and showing off and thinking they're great. So the, the image physically is that they're bulging, and they're big, and they're slick, and they look good. Again, maybe not fat is a good word for us, but maybe you know they're, they're big and powerful, they're thriving, they're robust, they're strutting around, they're thinking they're so awesome, but their hearts are, are perverted, right? Their hearts are twisted. It's full of foolishness. Um, they strut. It says in verse 10, Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? This is a little confusing phrase in verse 10 in the Hebrew, but we kind of understand it, interpreted a little bit through verse 11, this idea of uh, them thinking that God doesn't really care or know or see what they're doing. Um, It's a real common problem in our culture, both in religious and non-religious circles, that is often phrased as the secular-sacred divide. Have you all ever heard that phrase before? The divide between secular and sacred. And so somewhere in our history, we started to think that we could divide those two things real cleanly, Um, but the scriptures say you can't, right? Because the sacred uh, pervades everything. God's view of reality pervades everything. God owns everything. There's no part of our culture that God doesn't own. The way Abraham Kuyper, who is a famous both theologian and really political leader, Uh, the way he would describe it is there's no square inch of the earth over which Jesus Christ doesn't say, mine. It it all belongs to him. It's all his. And so when we want to say, oh, well, this over here, this is a non-religious little safety zone, well, that's a religious statement in itself. We're saying that it's possible for there to be a zone that God doesn't have sovereignty over and God doesn't have claim over. Now, I'm not arguing for any particular 
a political view here. I'm just saying God owns it all. And he's there. He's everywhere. We can't escape from him. So we have to keep that in mind. And that uh, translates into our personal lives. So forget politics. That translates into our personal lives when we think there are parts of our lives that God can't see. We think there are parts of our lives that God doesn't touch. And that, okay, I'll do holy things, you know, at church, and then I'll go do my job where God doesn't really care what happens. It's a different set of rules. He gets to set the rules wherever we go. He gets to set the rules wherever we go. And so they say again in verse 11, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Like, he doesn't know. Look at me. I'm doing fine. I'm doing okay. I don't need to do what God says. Verse 12, behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocent. For all day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. So it's like he's saying, this is what I wanted to say. They're right. I wanted to say the wicked are right, but I would have betrayed your children, God, if I had said that, so I kept my mouth shut. But I was doubting myself. You see, he's, he's this worship leader. He's this leader among the people of God who's seeing the wicked prosper and thinking and feeling in his heart, do you see God? So at the, at the one hand, he's rebuking them, saying they don't even think God sees them, and, and he's being lured towards that himself. Do you see the tension here? So we've got a worship leader who is saying, I'm starting to believe what the world believes. I'm seeing the world prosper. I'm seeing the world have fun by denying God, and I'm starting to think, yeah, yeah that looks pretty fun. That looks pretty good. There's this lure. There's this attractiveness to it. I was just thinking through illustrations of this, how the world um, teaches us that wickedness is attractive. And I was just thinking through the whole uh, media system of advertising and how we airbrush everything. I don't know if y'all are aware of this, but like, if you're going to be a model, you have to be you know, unusually beautiful already, and then they take you and they take pictures of you, and then they still cover up your flaws, right? So, so what you see when you see a model, or you see someone on on, uh, uh, in a magazine picture is you see someone that not only is an unusual human anyway, but then they've been airbrushed. They've been changed. It's not really what they look like. And I was thinking how we get these images in our minds of what we're supposed to look like, this lure of this is how life is supposed to be. And again, I, I want you to understand there's a sense in which life is supposed to be good. Life is supposed to be rich. Life is supposed to be happy. So what do we do with living in a world where it's not always that way? How do we handle that? Because we're attracted to it. We're made for eternity. We're made for health. We're made for thriving. We're made for prosperity. How do we handle it when we're attracted to that, but we don't seem to be getting it in our own life? What we're going to see for this author is we're going to see him, um, he's going to deconstruct it, right? He's going to realize that although it is attractive, it's not really everything it seems to be, right? It's kind of an illusion. And I was thinking again about how we we see this illusion of beautiful people being airbrushed and made to look perfect. I was thinking about when I was a kid, I've told you all before, I was a big comic book fan. I used to draw superheroes all the time. And, you know, it's the same kind of thing. Superheroes are these larger-than-life people that look so great. I was thinking about Superman, you know, and his special suit and his cape and how muscular he is. So I found a picture here of... uh, of a guy there. So I thought this was funny because this is like a, a frumpy dude that's out of shape, you know, that hasn't shaven, smoking a cigarette, drinking a beer with a floppy Superman suit on. He, he doesn't look sleek. He doesn't look 
prosperous. He doesn't look like he's thriving. And you kind of get this juxtaposition, right? You get this contrast between what we expect. We expect the superhero, but that's not really what he is. And I think that that speaks about, that's kind of like who we are, right? I mean, maybe not you, but for me, that's what I want to be. I want to be Superman. I put on the suit, but it's like all floppy and I don't really look so hot. I'm not not as strong as him. I I can't fly. Um, And so there's this tension that we live with. And I think what, what will help us, just to start at this point, and then we're, we're going to get some good insights from the rest of the text, but think about what is it that attracts you to the prosperity of the wicked now, right? Because there are, there are little doorways into all of our souls. What, what are those doorways? What's the lure of prosperity for you? Because it's going to look a little different, isn't it? What's the hook, right? Think of a lure like fishing. If you go fishing... The way I understand it, I'm not much of a fisherman, but you learn that there are certain lures that attract certain fish, right? I, I would argue that there are certain lures that attract us towards prosperity, towards uh, abandoning God and pursuing the prosperity of this world, temporary prosperity, now prosperity. What, what are those lures? What are the little doorways into your soul? Do you know what those are? Have you cataloged that at all? Uh, have you thought about it? Uh, I've talked before, one of the ways that you can kind of think through this is what are the things that keep you up at night? What are the things that upset you? What are the things that make you really happy? What are the things that make you really sad? Those are good little indicators. Those are like little diagnostic tools that help us have a doorway into our soul. That, that's probably the thing that's really luring you. That's the thing that, that you're saying, that can be my savior. That can give me true prosperity. And that's a doorway into pursuing the temporary prosperity of the wicked. What are those things? God, help help me to be real about that. Help me to recognize what they are and help me to recognize that you're the real Savior, not these other lures that I'm attracted to. So so how does he change his perspective? As, As we move through the text... He sees the slipperiness of prosperity, the, the temporariness of it. He, he uses earlier this phrase of, I almost slipped, and then he kind of comes back to that idea again. If you look at verse 16, he says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. So he says, when I went into the sanctuary of God, that helped me to have a a transformed perspective so that I could see clearly, right? So now instead of seeing it this way, now I can see it this way. Now I can see reality. And when I came into the sanctuary of God, I had now an eternal perspective, an eternal perspective that helped me to see the slipperiness of the wicked, that their prosperity may be prosperity, but it's a temporary prosperity. It's a falling prosperity. It's a prosperity that doesn't continue. It's dangerous. It's not a prosperity I really want because it's not a prosperity that will last. So the phrase he's using reminds me of this picture. I have a picture of some guys walking on a very narrow mountain pass. And what he's saying is when we're really up close, we might see the person with a fisheye lens and see that person is thriving. But when we back up and we get a bigger perspective, we recognize, oh wow, they're they're on a cliff, they're about to slip at any moment, right? That, that's a dangerous place. I don't know that I want that kind of prosperity. It's momentary prosperity. It's not a permanent prosperity. He says their feet are about to slip. So up close, it seems great, but from far away, we realize, I don't know if it's so great after all. 
So again, we're, we're made for prosperity. Prosperity should be attractive at some level, but we have to recognize that there are two kinds of prosperity. There's a temporary prosperity of this world, and there's an eternal prosperity of knowing God and walking with Him. And I just want to be clear, that eternal prosperity is also physical. We've, we've been confused over the years as we talk about the difference between flesh and spirit. Sometimes we think that heaven is just going to be floating around. That's not heaven. Heaven will be eating and drinking and physical and it will be taste and touch and smell. Heaven will be physical. It's very clear in the scriptures. What's different about it is it's so perfect and so awesome that it seems alien and other and heavenly, right? So in our minds, since we don't really, we can't really imagine everything good about this world but no sin, we, we have to uh, kind of transport it into some abstract concept of some other thing, and it, then it becomes so abstract and so weird, it's not even attractive to us anymore. But the scripture is pretty clear that the new heavens and the new earth are going to be a renewed creation. And I don't, I don't pretend to know how God's going to accomplish all that. I just, I just know he is. He promises it, right? So there's this eternal permanent prosperity that we look forward to. It's not like the prosperity of here and now is really bad and we've been tricked into thinking it's good, right? You know, like you're going to go eat a meal this afternoon, you're going to have a lunch, hopefully it'll taste good. It's not like that's really bad, you just think it tastes good. No, it really tastes good. And heaven's going to be like that, but even better. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's going to be even better. It's going to be even fuller. It's going to be even richer. That's the promise of heaven. And that's, like I said, hard for us to even understand. And so the question is, have you, like the author, woken up to that temporariness of prosperity now? That prosperity now is real, that food that tastes good really does taste good, but it's not worth selling our soul to get it, right? That that there's a future when we walk with God of, of an even better prosperity that we look forward to. When we follow him, we are guaranteed real prosperity, real future prosperity. And we get to enjoy some of it now, but ultimately the future outweighs the now. The way Paul describes it is that that future glory is not even worth comparing with the suffering that we endure right now. It's so much better. So we look forward to this better, even as we enjoy tastes of it now. So again, look at, look at how his perspective changed. He says, verse 17, I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in the heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. So he's saying, when I thought current prosperity is all there was, I was like a beast. But when I went into the sanctuary of God, I saw that it was temporary. And that there's going to be a day that's going to come. There's going to be a judgment that's going to come when you're going to, God, you're going to wake up and they're going to be swept away like phantoms. There's a temporariness, a slipperiness to the prosperity of the moment. Again, that's not to say that it's not a prosperity at all, all, but it's slippery. It's temporary and it won't last. And he's saying there is a day of judgment that's coming and the wicked will be judged. And that when we don't see that, we're like a beast. We're like a cow. And all we can see is the grass in front of us. That's what we're like when we envy the wicked. 
But when we come into the sanctuary of God, the holy place of God, we're able to see his, his eternal perspective. And that enables us to back up and to see the whole picture. That there is something beyond the here and now. That as good as the here and now is, it is good. It's not everything. There's a future. There's more. And that's what God is promising. So remember, again, we've talked a lot about how worship in the sanctuary of God in the Old Testament is very similar to worship now, even though culturally it's radically different, right? We don't have bloody sacrifices. We're not speaking in Hebrew. We're not playing Middle Eastern music. So there's a lot of cultural differences, right? So style differences, cultural differences. But it's the same God who says, I'm absolutely holy. I am perfect. I am righteous. I say what's right and wrong. That God is the same. And it's the same God that comes to us in grace that says, I'll make sacrifices to pursue you in love, to forgive your sin and adopt you into my family. So the character of God is the same. And the worship of God should be the same. We approach him in fear and then we recognize, I don't have to be afraid anymore. He's forgiven me. He accepts me in love. He delights in me. He adopts me as his child. And we see the love and the grace of God. It it should be the same thing for us now that it was for them then. That When they go to the sanctuary, they they are reawakened to who God is. Through the power of his word, what he declares about himself. He says, this is who I am. And so we gather in the same way. We gather to worship him and to realign ourselves and to change our perspective and to put on the glasses so that we can read. I remember my sister talking about how different it was Um, going to elementary school, and then one day figuring out that she needed glasses, going to get glasses, and she said, it was amazing. I could read the chalkboard. I didn't think anybody could read the chalkboard. Like, that was just her experience. She just didn't think other people could see the chalkboard. Um, For those of you that can't see the chalkboard in your classrooms, you might want to have your eyes checked. Um, It helped her a lot, right? All of a sudden, she had glasses, and now she could read the chalkboard. It was a total change of perspective. It changed everything for her. It was amazing. Before, she just didn't think anybody could see the front of the room. And then suddenly she could. Calvin said that the world that God has created, like we hear about in Psalm 19 and in Romans chapter 1, speaks clearly to who God is. So when we look out at creation, see a beautiful sunny day, it screams to us, God is good, God is awesome, God is great. He says, but we need the glasses of the scriptures to be able to really read it properly. And so the Holy Spirit in his word comes into our life and and gives us a new perspective. And changes us so that we can then read it properly. It's there, but we're not reading it right. And the scripture helps us to see it properly. So my question for you is, are you experiencing that change of perspective? The author here talks about going into the sanctuary. I think two kind of concrete ways to break that up is we are transformed by the power of the word, right? They would come into the sanctuary to hear the reading of the scripture, to be taught from the scripture. So that's a part of our worship as well. When we worship, we sing the scripture, we read the scripture, uh, we have communion with one another, with other people that are committed to listen to God, to what he has to say to us. That changes our perspective. We can also, thanks to being modern people, we can be like the kings of the Old Testament and have our own copy of the scriptures. Are you reading it for yourself? Are you reading it for yourself? So I think two ways to think about it is, Uh, worship, just the kind of the corporate thing of coming in and realigning ourselves in worship, but also reading it for ourselves, listening to the scripture, praying the scripture on our own. Are you doing that? Are those two things a regular rhythm in your life that's helping you to realign your perspective? Because all of us drift. 
just like Asaph, one of the great worship leaders, one of the authors of Scripture, doubted God's goodness. So I bet we could doubt God's goodness too. We could question his justice too when we see the prosperity of the wicked. So we need to continually have our our vision realigned. We need to keep putting back on the glasses so that we can read things properly. Uh, Jack Miller was a seminary professor and pastor from a generation ago, just passed away, I think about 10 years ago. Um, But he has this great quote about justification, about what God has to say about our righteousness. We call that justification, being made just. He says, justification is about the nastiest thing anybody could ever say about you. It is about a total criticism that anybody could ever give you. And it is in the cross. The cross is a total criticism. It says, your sins are awful. They are dreadful, and God hates them. And you can only have an escape by looking to the righteousness of another. I thought that was really interesting. I have a friend that's doing some doctoral research on the ministry of Jack Miller, so he just keeps posting these quotes from him every day for the last uh, few, few weeks. And I thought that one was fantastic because it helps us to remember we, we have to be realigned, right? Because we can start to think we're awesome. We can start to walk down that same path that the wicked walk down and be like, hey, God doesn't see what I'm doing. I can do whatever I want to. I've kind of got things figured out. I'm pretty smart. I'm pretty good. And we can drift back to self-justification. But God realigns our hearts through the gospel of justification by Jesus, not justification by self. God makes us righteous. On our own, we're, we're wandering. We're slipping off the path. So we need to continually realign ourselves to that word. We continually need to have those glasses put back on so we can read ourselves and the world rightly. The, the last thing that we see is that uh, we look forward to this permanent prosperity. He gives us a little window into what that permanent prosperity looks like in the last few verses. Verse 23 says, Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. This is a beautiful picture of closeness. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. This is incredibly personal and relational. The permanence of prosperity, the permanence of prosperity is based on the relationship that's irrevocable that we have with God himself. You see that? It's the relationship that makes it permanent. It's not an abstract, you know, care bears floating in heaven, you know, gold street. It's not abstract. It's concrete. It's real. It's this God who is absolutely reliable grabs hold of us. And he's our portion. He's our portion. He's what makes prosperity permanent and forever and faithful and good and rich and wonderful. He's the part. He's what holds on to us. I have a picture here of a of a dad holding a, a son's hand. We get, to, we get to live that out at a little tiny level when we carry along someone smaller, when we hold on to them, when we help someone else in life. And that's the picture that we're given of God walking with us. So he's holding on to our hand. He's counseling us. He's guiding us. He's leading us in relationship. God is real. God is close. He's not abstract doctrines, but he's a person. 
And it's most clearly seen through Jesus. Jesus told his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. A a God who is passionate about holiness and purity, but is present, who's right here with us, who comes after us, who dies for us, who takes our sins upon himself and gives us his life. And so Asaph ends with the, this is the prosperity I want. This is the permanent place that I'm heading. And that place, again, is not an abstract place out there. It's closeness with God. Do you see how he talks about it both as future and as present? And so God comes into our presence. And Jesus, this is what makes um, end-time study so confusing and uh, why Christians argue about it so much because uh, the Scripture says both things about the end times, right? The end times is a future we look forward to where all things will be made right, and that still hasn't been all tied up yet. And the end times is now. We live in the end times right now. Jesus has come into our life. He lives with us. He saves us. We know him. We're walking with him. So it's the end times breaking in to these broken times of sin and death and brokenness now. They're, they're being ripped apart. That This present world is fading because that future of all things being made right has burst into the present. And that gets to be our job is to show that to the world is to hold God's hand and walk that out in this broken world. Walk out the permanence of prosperity of walking with him among the brokenness of of the here and now that we live in and that we struggle with here and now. What changes your perspective? I guess I just want to finish with that. In your own life, have you had that moment come? Have you had that kind of experience? Have you... Have you come to see who God really is as he's revealed himself through the cross, through the gospel, as the God who who loves you, who's paid for your sins, who desires to have a relationship with you? Do you know him in that way? My prayer for us is that our perspective would be changed. Whether you've never come to have faith in God before, or if you already have faith in him, but like Asaph, you're slipping, right? You're struggling. The world is beating you up and you're looking at your neighbors and you're saying, it looks like everything's going great for them. I don't know if it's worth it. I don't know if this makes sense anymore. Asaph challenges us to reconsider who God is, to look at him again. Instead of looking at me, and instead of looking at the wicked, to look up at God, to have a vision of who he is that then transforms my perspective on here and now. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you love us and we thank you that you've revealed yourself to us through your word and the opportunities you give us to walk with you, to trust you. And we pray that we would live out this prosperity. Help us to trust you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.